0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: In the old, old Eastern European folk tales, there's a witch character by the name of Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga is said to live in a cabin in the woods, and the cabin is mounted on a pair of giant chicken legs. And so Baba Yaga's house is able to creep through the densely wooded forest. And sometimes Baba Yaga is kind and helpful... And at other times, Baba Yaga is a kind of a monster. When Chrissy Neen thinks of her grandmother, she thinks sometimes of Baba Yaga, formidable, loving, and cruel at times, and full of secrets. Chrissy Neen grew up in Blacktown, in Western Sydney, in a house with three generations under one roof. There was her mother, her aunt, her sister, her grandfather, and her domineering grandmother, Lottie. Lottie was very much the controlling matriarch of the house. Lottie, Chrissy knew, was born in Slovenia, a small country which lies somewhere between Italy and Croatia. And Lottie was obsessed with fairy tales, and she encouraged her granddaughters to write, to draw, and to live in their imaginations. And the women in the house spent their time sculpting giant, Life sized paper mache models of dinosaurs, dragons, and princesses in the living room. But Lottie, her grandmother, was tight lipped about her life before she came to Australia. And for Chrissy to even ask about her past was to invite scorn and ridicule from her grandmother. So when Lottie died, Chrissy got on a plane with a box of her grandmother's ashes. And she took them to the places of her origins, to Slovenia and to Egypt to find out the truth of Lottie's past and to find some traces of family in these far-flung places. Chrissy Neen's book is called The Three Burials of Lottie Neen. Welcome back, Chrissy. Thanks, Richard. You say your childhood home in Blacktown was like Barbara Yaga's house. Did the house have a kind of a that she sort of reputation in the area?
0: Oh, absolutely. It was a house unlike any of the others in that suburban street. It was surrounded by trees and she grew bushes up so that people couldn't see in. She was always worried that people would look in and see what was happening inside. So it was really like a thicket, a forest. And um, as kids, we played in it like it was a forest. It was different to the lawns and the sparseness of the other houses around us.
1: And was it a scary place for kids in the neighbourhood? It was like, watch out, that's the witch lady's house?
0: Yeah, we had, I I know that some of the boys in the neighbourhood would throw stones into the garden and would run away really quickly because they thought that someone might come out and eat them. Um, So there was definitely a sense that this was a witch's place and this was where that old lady who was very mean lived.
1: When you think of her from that time, how does she appear to you?
0: She was quite funny, actually. She had a very strange sense of humour in a very Eastern European way. So she laughed easily, she made jokes, but she was in control of everybody in that house. So she was the boss and what she said was absolute law and you couldn't go... You couldn't go around her, you basically had to obey her or she wouldn't speak to you again.
1: And how was she physically? Was she small or big, or or, or or how did she take up the space in the room?
0: She was little. We're all five foot nothing. Our family, the whole lot of us, and she was so she was little, but she always was had this nuggety energy. She would never walk from one place to another. She would always run, and she was very proud of her hands, which were so strong from doing all this model making that she could, you know, crush anything in her hands. She could crush walnuts, you know she used to do this thing where she'd crush the walnuts in her hand, which was, you know, I, I now don't have any idea how she did that. She must have had a trick. But um, <laughs> she would crush them and she would get there. She was amazing. But she did take up a lot of space in that place and she was the centre of our universe.
1: When you first came on the program, you told me how you, would, you and your sister would sit there, draw and write in, while you would listen to reel-to-reel recordings of movies that were recorded from the TV. You weren't allowed to watch the TV, but you were allowed to listen to these real to real recordings of the movies. So this was a childhood you really spent in Fantastic Worlds of the Imagination. Oh,
0: yes. And that was the wonderful thing about listening to movies rather than watching them As yeah. it could make up the stories of what you were seeing. So everything was us making stories together so us creating these fantastical worlds out of paper and the storytelling in the house was constant incessant stories
1: so was your living room did it have a touch of the game of thrones about it given that you had dragons and princesses being made out of paper mache, and how big were these things oh
0: look forever for as long as i remember there and i think still at the moment back home, there's um, this giant dragon that never got finished. It was as tall as the ceiling. Like it basically was right up to the ceiling. <laughs> to get it out of the house, you would have to cut it into pieces, which is what happened when they moved. They cut it into pieces. And it was giant. And it was like a another member of the household for my entire childhood and adulthood as well. It was just There was nowhere else to put it except front and centre in the lounge room while you're having dinner. (laughs) So, yeah, this stuff was everywhere.
1: You you say you and your sister are a bit like Baba Yaga's granddaughters. um, We were. Which is a fantastic heavy metal band name, just quietly. But uh, (laughs) how how protected, how, how sheltered were the lives of Baba Yaga's granddaughters in this house?
0: Well, we were allowed to go to school. Um, and that's it. so, um, school was very much encouraged. I think my grandmother was very um angry that she never got the opportunity to study. She was a very smart child and she never got the opportunity to go to school or university. And so for her, um, study was really important. So we went to school, we were walked to school and we were walked home and we didn't leave the house after that at any time unless we had some, we were encouraged to have extra activities like learning an instrument and we could go to a, a lesson to learn an instrument or dance classes once I went to when I was younger.
1: What about friends? Could you bring friends around? Would you want to and would they come if you asked them into Baba Yakka's house to, to come And play?
0: Not not really. Um, I did have some friends visit uh, later in my childhood. They'd visit me, but I wasn't allowed to visit them.
1: Tell me what happened when you were given an assignment at school to put your family tree out on a big bit of paper.
0: Yeah, that was pretty horrible. Um, I thought it was a fantastic thing to do because we had to draw the tree and I love drawing trees. Uh, and so I drew this incredibly beautiful tree with you know, lots of roots and lots of leaves and I did a lot of detail in the leaves and the roots and the bark. Um, but then, of course, when I had to put the names of people from my family on that family tree, I didn't really have anything to go by. I didn't know... What my family did for a living. I didn't know where they came from. I didn't know. I didn't have an extended family to actually put other names on that tree. And my grandmother refused to let me say where she was from.
1: What did she say when you asked her where she was from? She
0: said that they were being nosy. It was none of their business um, that I should say that she was from no man's land And I should say that she had no history.
1: And did you literally put that down on the family tree? I
0: did put no man's land down. And for her job, um, she said I should put playing with paper. So playing with paper got on the family tree as well. So unfortunately, I didn't get the best marks for that particular assignment, although um, they did like my tree.
1: (laughs) When you say you, you you were quite sheltered as a kid, what was she sheltering you from?
0: Well, she was very frightened of men. She thought that men out in the world would somehow hurt me, and she was frightened of sexuality, so there was definitely a ban on anything with kissing in it.
1: Was this counterproductive? Because you did go on to write tons of pretty wild erotic fiction as a writer, Chrissie. Made so- it
0: much more interesting to, to read erotic fiction when you're not not allowed access to
1: sex as a kid. a bit counterproductive for Nana in this case, as it turned out. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> she should have let me just see it. How about things like hugging or praise?
0: There wasn't any hugging in our house and definitely no praise. I wonder sometimes whether my family was a bit on the spectrum because there definitely wasn't any touching. No one liked to be touched. And I'm a little, I've learnt to hug, but it took a while and there was definitely no praise. In fact, um, when I was younger, I was a smart kid and I was always the second in class. It was, you know, I'd get the second highest marks, but if it wasn't the highest marks, it wasn't good enough for my grandmother. I'd say, oh, I got, you know, 90% in the exam. And she was like, who beat you? And I'd always say, you know, Wendy Lee, because Wendy Lee would always beat me. Um, And she would say, well, it's not good enough. It's not good enough until you beat Wendy Lee. And, you know, it was like, and Wendy was my best friend. So there was this kind of sense of that I wasn't good enough unless I was absolutely the best in the world. And I knew that I wasn't going to be the best in the world. I would never beat Wendy Lee. She was amazing. So I kind of retreated from the idea of winning,
1: Tell me about the day when you were out shopping with her and you got distracted by a shop window.
0: Yeah, that was when I was really young. I do remember um, she was teaching me a lesson and she had lots of lessons to teach and her lesson was that I had to hold onto her hand the whole time and I was a very distractible kid. I would get, you know, all the colours and lights and the, the shiny things would interest me and so I got distracted by something and I was staring at it and then suddenly I realised that I was alone and my grandmother wasn't there and I got frantic. I that didn't know perfect, what to do. That
1: perfect terror. I think we all have that as a kid, don't we? That moment we look around and mum and dad, for whatever reason, just have not there or we wandered off or something.
0: Absolutely. But she was there. She was just hiding and wanted to see what would happen and, and to teach me a lesson and to teach me to stay close. Um, so to give me that rush of fear so that I would know not to do that again. And that was quite a constant thing that she would do is always... To, I, I know that there was a story about my um, my mother. When she was a kid, she used to bite down on glass um, and they had these beautiful um, glasses that she loved that were made of crystal, like really, really delicate. Um, and they were the most beautiful things that they had in the house. And she she'd bite when she was a kid. And so to teach her not to, my grandmother gave her the best crystal glasses, poured the milk into it and made her drink out of it. And, of course, she bit down, broke the glass. And so my grandmother did it to another glass and another and another till the entire set were broken. And apparently that's how my mother learnt not to bite when she drank. But I kind of think of that and think these days... Someone might go to jail for allowing their very small child to bite glass. I don't know. I think that maybe that lesson was too harsh.
1: And the lesson is, look at all these, the most beautiful things in the house are broken.
0: Yeah, you've broken it. Because of what
1: and you've broken it. There mm-hmm. it is. I showed you. I told you. And now you have to believe me. And now maybe you'll listen and do as I say.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Despite her dislike and distrust of men, you say she used to... Stiffen when she'd even pass a man on the street. Mm. Your grandfather was in the house. What role did he have in the house?
0: He was quite subdued. I know he was very much under the rule of my grandmother. He was a quiet and gentle man, and my grandmother would constantly stop him from doing anything she didn't want him to do. So she would snap at him quite often. Charles, don't do that. Whatever it was that he was doing. Uh, he he loved to play the piano, and he was allowed to do it. It's, even saying that is strange. He was allowed to do it in his room with the door closed. But um, of course, she just hated the noise. So she would complain about the noise of the piano. So it, he would have to play very softly in his room with the door closed. And I would go in and play. I'd go and play the top note with him or turn pages while he was playing or sing while he was playing because I really enjoyed the music with him. But um, he definitely didn't have... He didn't have any agency in that house and he was definitely a bit of a second-rate citizen in his own house. A letter found its way to me from his brother in England many, many years later when he was dead, asking about him and and telling me how horrible my grandmother was and how, you know, disastrous she was for the whole family and how the the implications of her being in that family, you know, travelled throughout all the brother's
1: what about your father? Where was he in this, at this time? Did you see him at all? Was he in the house at all?
0: Well, When I was growing up, I always thought that he'd left when I was a baby because I didn't have any memories of my father being at home. So I thought I'd always told people, oh, my father left, you know, and divorced my mother when I was a baby. So I didn't remember him. And it wasn't until um, many years later when I went to see a psychologist that they said, oh, you need to know exactly when your father left. I asked my mother and surprisingly she told me the truth. And she said that I was nine when he left. And I have nothing, no memory of him being there. I know him and love him now. We're really close. I see him a few times a year and I adore him, but I don't have any memory of him. And I'm not sure whether that was because he didn't want to You know, maybe he wasn't in the house much because my grandmother was such a force. I I really don't know the answer to that, but I do know that he's another lovely, gentle man and perhaps he was in the shadow of my grandmother that whole time.
1: So in that house, like I said, there was your grandmother, your mother, your aunt, you and your sister and your grandfather somewhere in the background playing piano when he had permission in the bedroom or (laughs) thereabouts. All of you trapped in there, in Baba Yaga's cabin to some degree. Was there ever talk of escape?
0: My sister did speak about escaping a lot, actually. Um, My sister didn't like being under that rule, but nobody else in the house wanted to because you didn't want to get excommunicated from that particular kind of coven of women. You know, if you kind of spoke out against my grandmother, you would never be able to fit into that house again, and that house was your whole world. My sister was always looking for an escape route and she eventually did escape and hasn't spoken to my family since, you know, for 20 years or so. So she has sort of left completely. But um, there's a sadness in that as well because, you know, this is your entire life for all those years and then to suddenly leave it and never have contact with it again is quite tragic.
1: You say your grandmother asked you to put down no man's land as her place of birth when you were trying to fill in that family tree project, but you knew she was from Slovenia yeah. in South Central Eastern Europe, sort of wedged between Northern Italy and Croatia, was once part of Yugoslavia. It's one of those kind of threshold nations where people have come and gone. It's been part of this or that empire over however many years. What else did you know about her background, if anything at all, other than she was originally from Slovenia?
0: Well, I knew that my mother and my aunt were born in Egypt. So I knew that.
1: Egypt? Now that's odd.
0: I did think it was odd and I had no idea why they were born in Egypt. I know my grandfather was born in Egypt. And somewhere along the way in my childhood I picked up the idea that it wasn't just my grandfather born in Egypt, but perhaps his parents and his parents' parents were born in Egypt too. It was only later after he died that I started to... Wonder about him because he had a you know very plummy um, Queen's English accent and you know he was talked about as being British. and yet he didn't look very British to me. He kind of had a, he had a Mediterranean look about him and I didn't quite know why. And so it wasn't until he died that I thought to well, I thought that it was possible to ask where his background. Was
1: You know, when you first came on about 10 years ago, I think now, it was quite a while ago, mm. and you told me that story, I was really trying to find what's the connection between Slovenia and Egypt? And you didn't know and I didn't know. No one could quite figure it out. No. What, what happened when you went to your grandmother and said, hey, why don't I go to Slovenia and look up the old town where you're from and and meet the relatives. Of what was her response to you trying to investigate the past?
0: Oh, she was very against it. She um, forbade it. Uh, she didn't want me to go um, to Slovenia at all. Um, I knew that that was another moment that I could be excommunicated. So she did put that family. to you. She did
1: say you'd be excommunicated if you went to Slovenia?
0: She didn't say it in so many words, but she would say, um, do what you want. I don't, you know, I have nothing to do with this. I, I, I don't want anything to do with this. And you knew by her saying it and her tone that she would be very angry because other things you had done in the past when she used that tone meant that if you cross that line, even though she says, I don't care, you know that she will never speak to you again if you go across that line. And
1: did she have a way of making you feel bad for just even proposing the idea?
0: Oh, absolutely. I really, I all my childhood and still now, even now she's dead and still I think she can hear my thoughts. So I would try and hide my thoughts um, in case she was hiding in my head somewhere and could hear them. So I did have a childhood where I strangely was trying to kind of hide anything I was thinking as soon as I thought it and, and bury it because I thought my grandmother, my grandmother was very witchy and I really felt like she could see inside my head.
1: And then when you were a teenager, the story took another dramatic turn and this is just the strangest thing in the world, Chrissy. This is really the strangest thing in the world. One day, Baba Yaga, your grandmother Lottie, won the lotto. Yes. She won the lotto. Do you, do you have a kind of a dollar figure in your head of how much she won? I like, have
0: no idea. Like
1: we can assume it's like at least hundreds of thousands of dollars and thereabouts.
0: I, I have no idea. I have no idea how much it was, but it was the first division lotto.
1: Right. She won the lotto. Yes. So, and then overnight you discovered that she had decreed that we're all going off to Queensland, all of us, everyone, the whole family was going to decamp to central Queensland to a place on the Bruce Highway between Mackay and Gladstone and she was going to set up a kind of a fantasy tourist display museum for her paper mache sculptures called Dragon Hall. I, 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 scarcely, I know. It's, it's just the most amazing thing. Lottie wins odd. Lotto. Yes. I mean, <laughs>
0: Yeah, and and not only did she win lotto, but you know she she won it by doing these calculations that she would do. She would you know use her calculator and she'd calculate. I don't even know what she was calculating. She had she like was a like little a card
1: counter. What she essentially she was, won the lotto and she and had right. like
0: a little mini kind of ball thing that she'd roll around and she'd <laughs> see what ball came out and she'd write that down and she'd add it to her calculations. And she would say, "Don't disturb me, I'm doing my calculations." But eventually, she won the lotto. So and then moved to Bororan, of to all Bororan in
1: Central Queensland. Yes. So when you went out there to Central Queensland, what did the place look like that she'd bought?
0: Very flat, very dry, um, not a very thriving community, a very kind of um, a dying community, really. A lot of um, cattle country. Uh, and very over-farmed as well. So there are places which are beautiful along in that area. There are places that are um, incredibly natural and some of the areas near the coast and, and some of the areas near the mountain. But the area that she had was pretty much swamp. Um, so the back end, she had forty acre a 40-acre block and the back end of the block was swampy. You couldn't really walk in it without sinking.
1: And this was the place she'd bought to build her tourist attraction. You know, for all the kind of mocking scorn she put on you for your lack of worldliness, she got conned, right? Oh,
0: yeah. She definitely she, she wasn't
1: worldly conned. at all, in other no. words.
0: No, she wasn't. And in fact, I think the real estate agent took them up in a plane, which she was very you know, impressed by, and flew over the land. So she never got to set foot on the land, which if she had, she would have sunk a little bit.
1: So you're, you're living in this place in, in incredible heat in central Queensland and you've built there's this place called Dragon Hall, which is what a big shed essentially yeah, is. Yeah, it? It,
0: well, it was going to be more, but they only got as far as building this giant Besser Brick shed, which um, was quite large, quite a large shed. But um, it really, you have to get off the highway, go over a train track and then down a dirt unsealed road um, to get to Dragon Hall.
1: If you build it, they will come, but did they come? No,
0: they didn't come. There were a few buses that um, came, of you know, from the old people's home and some um, school tours that came through occasionally, but it was very rare um, and it was only, I think it was only because people felt sorry for her that they they had bus tours that came out.
1: So within a year, you'd gone through all the money pretty much and you were marooned in sort of central Queensland somewhere.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it, we got stuck, I think,
1: she always said she was a storyteller but wouldn't tell you her own story. You you made a documentary for the ABC yeah. called Dragon Hall about this impossible dream of, of your grandmother's. You say she was quite happy for you to film the exhibits for it, her big sculptures, but when you tried to interview her about herself, what did she say?
0: Oh, she told me that that was too personal. It wasn't for me, that I wasn't allowed to ask those questions. And she would she would kind of... Um, try and be tricky, you know, try and, with her answers, try and be tricky so that she wasn't giving anything away but she was, you know, being able to answer without answering, I suppose, like a politician. Um, so, she, so she was
1: enjoying this game with you?
0: I think she was enjoying the game, the, the game of not being caught. She thought that I was trying to catch her into saying something true.
1: Couldn't she trust you with her story?
0: No, no. In fact, there's a wonderful... Um, snippet from the documentary where she, um, where I was filming her just on my handy cam in the pre-production. And she sort of, I I was like, you've got to trust me. I'm not going to say anything bad about you. I am from you. I am, this is my family. I'm not going to say, you know, anything horrible about you. You've got to trust me. And she said, oh, I don't trust you because I see you deep, deep inside. I see you. And she was pointing her finger at me. And then, you know, when we were looking through that footage later, um, my partner just looked at that and just went, that's, you know, that is so Lottie, you know, that kind of that, that, that idea that she thinks everyone's trying to pull the wool over her eyes, everyone's trying to hoodwink her in some way. She couldn't trust anybody.
1: To me, it sounds like you and your extended family were part of a cult mm. led by your grandmother. Do you see it that way?
0: I do now. Over the years, I think having a partner of my own who didn't come from Lottie land. Um, this is
1: why it's good to have a partner sometimes. They they, they they can sort of walk into your family life and they go, you know that thing your family does? That's kind of mad, yeah. thing. And you go, really? I suppose it is now that I think about it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The,
0: he, he yeah. did a lot of truth-telling to me and went, you know, that's just your family. And quite yeah. a lot um, he'll say to me, you know, that's just your family. Don't, don't be like that. That's just your family. And so over the years I've kind of learnt that, it was a cult. It was the cult of Lottie and it still is in some ways, you know. She's still a part of our lives very strongly.
1: And so when she died a few years ago, how were you
0: hit by that? It was a very, very strange period of time. I know that I was supposed—I was on deadline to deliver a book but I couldn't write and all I could write was these little fragments which I'd, I'd be awake in the middle of the night and I just had to write down these fragments of things from being with her and that eventually became a book of poetry. It was the only thing that relieved me of this sense that the world was going to end. She'd kind of, she oh. told us that she would never die. Like that was something that she was saying, I'm not going to die, I will live forever. And I didn't believe it, but I kind of did believe it as well. So when she did die, the idea that she was mortal had never been a real thing in my head. And then when she did die, it made me feel like the world was coming apart. And there was a cyclone um, up north as well at the same time. So when we went to um, pick up her ashes, I remember like driving along and watching on the, the Bureau of Meteorology website and seeing the kind of the path of the storm, like tracking just behind us in the car and thinking this is her. She is doing this. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: So after she died, you went and got a DNA test. You'd had some thought, I think, that because she seems to have fled or she left Slovenia, and gone to Egypt, it might have been because of the Holocaust, so therefore she might have been Jewish and therefore you might have Jewish ancestry. What did it reveal when she got that DNA test, Chrissy?
0: Well, I I did think that her history, her hidden history, must be about being Jewish because that area of Europe, you know, um, the Jewish people were so um, persecuted. Um, But it wasn't as clear as that. There was a little bit of Jewish blood in me, like a 7%, really small. And the rest of it was the closest reference group was Romania. And I started to think, Gypsy, you know, it's Romani. But I couldn't put anything together. I didn't understand.
1: So you and your partner, Anthony, decide to go to Slovenia with a box of your grandmother's ashes. And you go to Ljubljana, the capital of Slovenia. And this is I've never been there, but I'm told it's one of those lovely medieval fairy tale cities. It's
0: it's so beautiful. It really is. There's cobbled streets and the old town is is, has remained intact. You've got to wonder what they kind of negotiated in the wars to (laughs) remain intact. But you know, it's it's beautiful old buildings. There's there's this giant a dragon on the bridge, on one of the bridges um, leading into Ljubljana. And right. I got there and went, oh, well, I see why she's so obsessed by dragons because there are dragons everywhere in Slovenia, not just Ljubljana but in the country as well. Dragons are a big thing. Castles everywhere, you know, castles and churches.
1: What did you have to work on? What info did you have other than that she was from Slovenia and she went to Egypt?
0: Well, I had no more information so I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll go there and I will learn about the things that I might be able to find out about. So I thought food culture, that's something that, you know, food cooking was a really important way of her controlling the family. You know, she, she was the only person allowed to cook. And so I thought, well, I'll be able to find those dishes and, and learn a bit more about her there. I also thought that the fairy tales that she told were not like the Western kind of versions of fairy tales. And I thought maybe there's some hidden secrets because fairy tales... Uh, myths are a way that oral cultures keep history. And so I thought maybe I can unpack these fairy tales that she's told me. Um, And I also thought that, you know, maybe I'll get there and I'll see people who look just like me. It wasn't as clear cut as I thought it was. So you're just going to
1: like feel your way forward through the darkness of not knowing and all that.
0: I just had to take a leap.
1: That's all I've got. Yeah, and how quickly did a door open for you once you got there into some kind of, you know, great big cold hard facts about your grandmother?
0: I wanted to find a place where I could write and I don't like writing in at home or at the unit that I was, I was Airbnb unit. So I found a place to write and I found this bookshop. I'm always attracted to bookshops and just above this bookshop was a cafe and the cafe had all these tables. In Slovenia, bookshops are also publishers and this particular bookshop publisher was like a cultural studies bookshop. So I thought it feels nice being here and it feels there's a cafe, I can sit at the table, so I would stay there all day and write. And then um, I went down every so often and asked for books that might be related to my work and there was never anything exactly right until finally I went, well, look, I'll tackle the Egypt stuff and I'll ask the bookseller about if they've got anything about Egypt. And I asked her and she sort of said, oh, what sort of things about the, you know, the, the gods or, and I said, no, no, no. I said, my grandmother went to Egypt from Slovenia and she said, oh, she was Alexandrinka.
1: Alexandrinka.
0: Alexandrinka. And I had never heard this word before, and I said, I don't know what that is. And she said, oh, no, she must have been Alexandrinka. These were the women who went from the Primorska region in um, Slovenia to Egypt.
1: Why were women going from this rural part of Slovenia to Egypt? What, when? What was the story there?
0: Well, the story was that particular part, that Primorska region, which is the west, sort of southwestern area, on the border uh, with
1: Italy. On right. the border with Italy, yeah.
0: before and during um, World War One, that border changed a lot, and there was wars over that border, and the so Italy kind of encroached on Slovenia. So some of the Slavs became kind of trapped within the Italian border and the Italians wanted to, I suppose it was a kind of ethnic cleansing, they wanted to get rid of the Slavicness out of the people in that area. So they weren't allowed to speak their language, they weren't allowed, to, the men weren't allowed to work, they were taxed incredibly heavily and the children were brought up learning Italian only. There was a lot of other kind of horrible kind of tortures and killings that happened over that area. And the men couldn't get work and the only people that could work were the women. And some of the women had gotten jobs as um, nursemaids and as um, carers for children for rich Italian families and often that was in Trieste. The port
1: city. The port city. Just, the, port city just the corner from Venice, isn't it? Yeah, 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 and that
0: used to be a Slovenian city actually but it's, you know, an Italian city now. That was where a lot of the Italian women, rich Italian women were. Years before this, in the, the cotton boom started in Egypt and so a lot of those rich Italians had businesses with the cotton and so they moved over to Egypt to kind of make use of this incredible cotton that was being produced in Egypt and some of them took their Slovenian maids with them and it became a bit of a status symbol through the war years in World War I to have a Slovenian maid I think it was because the Slovenes, they could speak Italian, they spoke lots of languages, but they spoke Italian, and they were Catholic, which was um, valued by the Italians. And they were seen as kind, strange given my grandmother's um, personality, but the Slovenians were seen as kind nursemaids. And so it became this thing, and suddenly, and for quite a number of years, Slovenian women were valued as carers for the children of firstly the Italians and then other people who saw how good they were
1: so, and so, wanted so, nurse mates. So essentially these, these rich, rich expats in Egypt and Alexandria and Cairo perhaps uh, between the wars and during the war in between the wars yep. uh, are bringing over Slovenian women from poor and starving villages. Yes. To act as governesses and nannies.
0: And And wet nurses. And wet nurses as well. that's a big thing. That's that's a lot of the history that I've read. It talks about the wet nurses because the women would have their own babies and then have to leave their babies at home.
1: So there was a a whole kind of remittance economy then of of Slovenian women going all the way over to Egypt.
0: Yeah. Acting as
1: nannies, I suppose, selling their motherhood skills. But Thereby depriving their own, their own children, own, their own yeah. children of, of those skills.
0: So there was—it's a, a kind of a bittersweet story because they supported their villages, they saved their villages from starvation, and um, a lot of the men had either gone to be soldiers or had gone overseas to try and make a living in South America, and many of them were never heard from again um, or never sent money home. Whereas these women, they went to Egypt, they were helped by the Catholic Church to get over there so it became a bit of a business for the Catholic Church. They got a bit of payment for taking the women over. They kind of trafficked them in a way and they left their families at home and these children grew up without without knowing their mothers. And if they did know their mothers, they would come home briefly on a holiday, visit, give them some, you know, Egyptian sweets and then leave again.
1: So these women, these Slovenian women, who we now can assume your grandmother was one of them,
0: Mm.
1: what kind of a life did they have once they got to Egypt?
0: It was actually quite good. So compared to their life in the villages, it was quite good. So as children, it's not so good because the children of these Alexandrinka who were sent, some of, the, some of the women were able to send for their children. They either made enough money to get their children over or, as is the case with my grandmother, the, the boss of um, her mother was very, very generous and allowed the children to come over. So some of them were allowed to bring their children over, but if they were there as children, they had to live with the nuns until they were old enough to work and take up a position of their own. So, you know, the the women at home had to wear these kind of very heavy, homespun, uh, you know, peasant gowns, there was, you know, at the time in, in Slovenia, men were definitely the head of the household and there was one knife in each of the house and that knife was the, the husband's knife and he would carve the meat with it. And, um, it's like the
1: sword of his honour or something It was something like the like sword that. of his yeah, honour, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, these women went to Egypt, which was the cultural capital of the world at that time and they were learning about other cultures and they were dressed in fine clothes because they had to make the mothers of the, the rich families, they had to make them proud. So they dressed them in really good clothes. Sometimes they accompanied their, you know, employers over to Paris. You know, they they were globetrotting with Right. So, so these. suddenly
1: these women who had come from these villages were living in a huge cosmopolitan metropolis that was mm. rich and glamorous. So their villages would have seemed very far away. Them, yeah.
0: It was a culture life. shock. And for them there was a, a almost a, a relief from those kind of farm duties, from poverty, from being under the thumb of your husband. There was a relief from that, but there was also the sadness of losing your family, of leaving your children behind, um of being seen As, you know, being talked about, like, the Catholic Church who was benefiting from these women, one of the priests particularly wrote all these um, notices saying that the Slovenian women were, that their morals were being um, wrecked over there in Egypt and that they were talking to black men over there and that they were um, becoming prostitutes, basically. And this wasn't true. Well, wasn't true for most of them, and you know, yet it was seen at home. That's all. That's the only word that they get is that their um, their loved one is becoming a prostitute over in Egypt.
1: They were becoming, by nineteen thirty standards, liberated women to some degree. In yeah, any case.
0: exactly, feminists.
1: Yeah, and, and also cultured as well. That's the other thing in this yeah. kind of this swirling sort of uh, atmosphere of different languages and people from all over the Reading
0: world. Reading books which they wouldn't have read back home.
1: So you found all this out while you're in Slovenia, yeah, and you went to the the, the village where you where your, your your grandmother's name was attached to. Yeah. Tell me what you found out there.
0: It was tricky to um actually find anyone related to my grandmother when I went to Mirren, the village, because no one speaks English and I don't speak Slovene or Italian or German, which are the languages of choice over there. So I felt like a bit of a dummy turning up there with no language apart from English. But eventually I managed to find relatives and they had been keeping the grave of my great-grandmother, you know, and, and planting flowers on it and keeping it nice. This
1: is Lottie's mother, your grandmother's yeah, mother. Yeah,
0: yeah, Carlotta, my grandmother's mother. And I've so I eventually found them and they really embraced me. They took me home with them, they cook me so much food you've got to go to um, your village with an empty stomach, I tell you that now because every time you meet someone new they feed you and they make you drink wine which they get out of these big barrels and put into these plastic um, water bottles, you kind of fill up the water bottle full of the wine that they've made and then go into their um, cellar where they've hung the sausages
1: (laughs) and what what, what effect did it have on these villagers to meet you, Did, did it affect them emotionally to see you?
0: It did actually, they were incredibly Um, warm and embracing. And and they showed me photos and were emotional about it. One particular man, I will never forget, they took me to see him. I don't even know what relationship he has to me. He was very old. I would say he would be in his 90s. And We came over there, he put out the wine and the sausages as well. But when they said that um, I was, you know, the daughter of a granddaughter of an Alexandrinker, he started crying, he started weeping, and he was saying it was so sad. He must have been a child that had been you know, abandoned, as they say, by a mother who was an Alexandrinka. So is, it re- so
1: is it remembered as a tragedy, the loss of those women now?
0: It is remembered as a tragedy, particularly in Slovenia, yeah. because, you know, those people, it's still the memory. It's like a whole generation of women were plucked out and not just one generation but two generations or three sometimes were plucked out of home and those families grew up without their mothers, without mothers.
1: Then came the day while you were there where you went down to the, the local river, with one of your newfound cousins who who was kind of reluctant, who was a bit wary of telling you uh, a bit of the family folk lore that pertained to your grandmother. Tell me what she told you on that day.
0: Well, my grandmother apparently was very, very close to her cousin, Jojitza. The two of them were born very close together, days or weeks apart. And um, as young children, they were very, very close and they played together and they looked exactly like each other. She kept saying to me, I had a friend interpreting and she kept saying, they were like twins, they were like twins, they were like twins. And then she said about Yojitsa, the cousin, she said, it's such a shame that she was the child of a rape. And... As soon as she said that I kind of thought well, what is she saying to me what happened and I found out that what had happened was that the river that runs through Miran the Vipavna river it runs through Miran and it goes down to the Sosha river which is a big river and there was a battle on the Sosha river at the time and it was there was 3 years of battles they were called the Azonzo Battles because. First World War. First World War. In Italy, that river, the Socia River, is called the Isonzo, and in Slovenia, it's called the Socia River. But so, because the victors name the battles, it was called the, the Battles of the Isonzo. And over those three years, Five hundred and twenty thousand soldiers from either side were killed in those battles. That's an astonishing amount. It is a huge amount, and the soldiers from my side, the the Austro-Hungarian soldiers, would follow the Pávna River to get to the Soča. So that was their that was their way going down, and they'd go straight through Miran, and it was the last stop before they got to the war where they were going to die. Um, and it turns out that on this one particular evening, soldiers came through and. They, had, they were allowed to demand what they wanted. They were the allies and they were demanding what they wanted from the villagers. But that village was so, you know, under strict rules from the Italians and they couldn't get any food and they were starving in the village and they didn't have any food to give the soldiers. So the soldiers um, raped this woman's mother, um, Antonia, and then Yozitsa was born but the implication in this story was that there was it was possible because these two girls, Jojitsa and my grandmother, Dragitsa, were born at the same time, a number of days apart, that it's possible that they were both the children of that rape because it's possible that her father was away at war at the time. That was the implied statement. There's no way of proving this but it's possible that my grandmother was a child of rape. There is no way of proving it, and my grandmother certainly would, um, you know, would beat you around the head if you said it to her, I think. I don't think she would have been told the true story, but certainly in the village they thought that these two girls that seemed like twins might have had the same father.
1: I wonder if, given that that was village folklore, that might have made... It's just pure speculation, you know. Your grandmother would might have grown up with the kind of screwed up morals at the time as a creature of shame. Then it's the product of rape.
0: Yeah, I think that certainly and that would. And would that explain something
1: about it? Do you think? Oh, you mind?
0: absolutely! I as soon as I heard it and started to like, it's something about the way she said it to me and the way she was looking at me. I kind of went back through the family tree that she'd given me, and I kind of went, look, they're born so close together, and you know they looked like twins, and. Maybe she's saying that they have the same father. And when I when that fell into place, it felt like the story had clicked into place for me because it felt like all of my grandmother's fear of men, her fear of us being like always when we were kids, she thought that we would be raped. She thought that we would be taken by some man somewhere and raped. And I always thought that she was, you know, over-dramatising this, that every man was some kind of a predator. But maybe... There's a, you know, maybe there's a remembered history there.
1: So that's your grandmother in Slovenia. But there was still the story of your grandmother in Egypt. Yes. Once, what, had, what had become of her and what had, what, what had happened while she, while she was there. And you're thinking about this. This is why I think of you, Chrissy neen as, a, as an, in, an enchanted creature for, for all your love of science because you're thinking about this in Slovenia and out of the blue you get an email from a woman who loves your book who says, Oh, and if you're ever in Cairo, come and stay with me.
0: That's right.
1: That it, doesn't happen in this right. world, Chrissy. No. So, so maybe you know. This is, it, to me, it sounds like someone else is moving the furniture of reality around around you. At this point, this is amazing. This, this, this should happen, but it did happen. It did. So you, so you go to Egypt as an, as the upshot of all that, Chrissy.
0: The upshot is, yes, someone out of the blue who I'd never met. Emails me and says, love your book. If you're ever in Egypt, come and stay with me. I didn't even know who she was. Name, B- I didn't even know it was a her. Her name was BJ Sil- Silcox. And weirdly, I emailed my agent and said, this strange person has has contacted me and it seems that she's a writer. Do you know her? And my agent said, oh, yes, she's one of my clients. Like, <laughs> you'd love her. You have to go and stay with her. So that was, you know, that cemented it. I just went, okay, I'm going to go and stay with this BJ Silcox person.
1: So while you're in Egypt, you, yes. go, to, you go to Alexandria where your mo- your grandmother had lived all those years ago. Where well, your mother was born too, and your aunt as well. Yes. What did you find out while you were in Ale- Alexandria?
0: So there's there's actually a Slovene society over there, um, which keeps this history alive because there's quite there's quite a few descendants of Slovenes still living in Egypt today. A lot of them were from mixed marriages, and so they stayed when a lot of the other people left. But I kind of was. I was interviewing people who were um, Slovenes or children of Slovvenes still living in Egypt. I went to Alexandria to kind of talk to um, someone whose mother and and grandmother were Alexandrinka as well I was sitting in this is another one of those strange coincidences I was sitting in her beautiful living room which looks like it's still from the 50s and um, And she asked me where my family were from, and I said, oh, Mirren. And she said, oh, my family are from Mirren too. And it turns out her last name is the same last name as my great-grandmother's last name was before marriage, and so it turns out that we were related. Your family? Yes, so we were family.
1: You're meeting Slovenian family in Alexandria in Egypt.
0: It was the weirdest thing.
1: You went to the convent, which, as you said, acted as a kind of like the uh, I don't know what do you call it—the employment placement organization in Alexandria, yeah. which placed Slovenian women coming into into Egypt in, in with wealthy families. And what did that nunnery look like today?
0: It's it's kind of small and run down. It's a little bit poky and run down, and it's got this little church which I went which I went into—a little sort of room that they would have worshipped in—and it couldn't have fitted too many people in it, but. The the girls would turn up there when they came from Slovenia, and they would live there in this convent. Um, they would be looked after by the Slovenian sisters, and then when they were old enough, they would be placed with families by the sisters. And the whole um, Slovenian community would meet in the backyard of that little church, little gated church, and they'd come there and on every Sunday, and they'd have they'd you know listen to. Prayers or whatever happened back then, and then they'd um, meet and have a feast and and play together in the backyard. So it was a strange little place. And these two nuns who still speak Slovenian, um, who are, you know, a mixed origin, I think, um, and they're still there. Just looking after the place, it feels like it feels like the last gasp of this dying history to be there actually. And recently, there's been a, a plaque put on the wall in that church, which has a picture of the journey from Trieste, from Slovenia to Trieste to um, Alexandria. So it's actually this kind of map that's on the wall there, which which commemorates that kind of journey that people would have taken.
1: So why didn't your grandparents stay there in Egypt? There
0: was. A time when they couldn't. So I think they might have if things had gone a different way, but there was a revolution, a change of government.
1: This is when NASA took over in the mid-50s.
0: Yeah, mm. and so there was a nationalisation of work and money. So if you owned property and you weren't a national, like if you weren't an Egyptian, you had to hand over your property to the Egyptians. So, and And I think, you know, mixed feelings about this because it was pretty much like a colonisation of sorts with um, people from all over the world having lots of money and owning lots of property and kind of um, trampling all over a country that really wanted its independence. And the Egyptian people were not seen as equal to the Europeans at that time. So there was, you know, I have quite mixed feelings about this, but the children who were born there had not known any other place except Egypt and then suddenly in the 50s they had to go. And in the case of my family, it was apparently overnight. Uh, Apparently there was a mark put on the door and that meant that um, they were going to be burnt out. And so my grandmother and the two kids left immediately and went on a boat to England, which was a country that they had never gone to. They'd never been in before. And then my grandfather joined them later, I suppose. He was still had to finish some work. He worked for the British Embassy there. And so there's, there's lots of kind of odd little complications for that exodus because these were people that had lived there for three generations, you know, four generations with my mother.
1: So at the end of your visit there, you'd, you'd already put a, a pinch of your grandmother's ashes in a dragon hall, the, the doomed fantasy hall in central Queensland, a pinch of them in Slovenia, in Mirin, the town she was from. And then you risked life and limb by crossing the Corniche, about a 120-lane freeway that's going right along the edge of the beach in Alexandria to get to the Mediterranean so you could... Barely drop her ashes into the sea, but uh, having done so, a few of them blew back in your face and you ended up inhaling your grandmother. But, you know, whatever. Okay. It's the gesture, isn't it? It's the, <laughs> it gesture. Is the gesture. It's the gesture. So that's the three burials of your grandmother. It seems to me, and this is just me talking, you know, off the top of my head here, Chrissy, that your grandmother looms so large in your mind. Like she's Barbie Yaga, but she's not, she wasn't Barbie Yaga. She's just a person like yeah. the rest of us. Yeah. And she needed to shrink a bit. And if you find all these other relatives of yours, this extended family that you'd never known about now, you have cousins and uncles all over the, all over the world now as a result of all this, you do have that kind of extended family you weren't allowed to access. You do have yeah. that now. Yeah. Is she shrinking a bit in your imagination? Is she a bit like, you know, I'm melting, I'm melting a bit <laughs> under, the, under the cup of water? You What's would happening?
0: think so, but no. Um, no. She's still... She's still- the most important person in my life. So no matter what? how... Really? She, she is still the most important person in my life. She No matter how, you know, she was harsh, she was cruel. She was a survivor though, you know. She, if you think about a small child who's abandoned by her mother soon after her birth, who possibly is a child of a rape, maybe, um, who's living in a small, you know, farming village um, with extended relations looking after her. And then suddenly she's called on to go to Egypt on her own, on this gigantic train journey and then a boat journey well, all by herself. As a teenager, herself. yeah. It, possibly earlier. It seemed like the feeling was that the girls would go earlier, so maybe nine. Oh. You know, when they're not very old, they're, they're sent over to Egypt. So she would have done that journey by herself.
1: So severed from her family, she then built a new one in Australia in far-flung Blacktown. And sort of held on to you, and never let you go, to never let you go.
0: Maybe. I think it was out of fear, like you know she she built her empire, her kind of her cult, mm. if you if you will, but she built it out of wanting to keep us safe at the heart of all of this was that she was she wanted her family never to leave her, and a child that was abandoned as a child and who never had a sense of home needed needed to build a sense of home i I do miss her, and I do long for her, and I feel. Like what she gave me was a sense that she was caring and that she was magic and that somehow her magic was coming into me.
1: I never heard a story like this before in my life. It's one of the most amazing stories, Chrissy. Thank you very much for sharing it today. Thanks, Richard. Chrissy Neen is the author of The Three Burials of Lottie Neen. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening.
0: been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. a heist of grand proportions and a story straight out of a Hollywood blockbuster. Millions of dollars of diamonds smuggled out of the remote Kimberley in Western Australia, then around the world. But the diamonds weren't lost to the 80s when this heist happened. The stolen gems are back in circulation. On Pink Diamond Heist, how did no one notice diamonds were being smuggled out of the world's most secure mine? who were the culprits behind this multi-million dollar heist and where are the stolen diamonds now? Find out right now on Pink Diamond Heist on the ABC Listen app.